0: It was perhaps David's lowest point in a lifetime of high points and valleys. David's own son Absalom had convinced some people that David was too old to rule anymore. And that it was time for new blood and leadership. That he had convinced people that he was the new blood. And so he gathered a group of people together and began to make plans on taking the kingdom from his dad. David was a man that had been troubled with family issues basically since the Bathsheba incident. And as a result of differing things, there were people that were ready to rally behind this son of David and say, he is the one that we're going to follow. So Absalom and his men began to encroach upon the holy city and David, not wanting a bloody civil war, especially involving his son, decided to retreat. As he was leaving town with some of his advisors and men, he probably thought it can't get any lower than this. And yet, on the way out of town, there was a man there, Shimei, or who saw David and his men leaving and began to mock and hurl insults at him. Looks like you're finally getting what you deserve, David. Look at you cowering away from the city. David's men, pushed to the brink of humiliation, thought to themselves, this can't stand. And they looked at David and said, let us run him through with the sword let us put an end to him the idea was let us show people this will not stand david just looked at him and said no don't do anything let him be he said perhaps i'm getting what i deserve and they walked away now if the story ended there it'd be an interesting story it'd be one that we might debate whether or not David had done the right thing and just letting him be. Perhaps none of us would say they should have run him through, but we could question his tactics. But the story doesn't end there. In the book of 1 Kings, we have David in the transition of power from him, not to Absalom, because Absalom wouldn't survive the rebellion, but to his son Solomon. And in that transition, there's a moment when They are gathered around David, and he is literally on his deathbed. He is in his final hours. He's in his final moments. And there must be tons of things on the mind of David, but one is that man on the outskirts of town who was hurling insults at him. Look at the Scripture with me. He tells his gathered assembly, Keep an eye on Shimei, son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Bahurim, who is with you. He uttered malicious curses against me the day I went to Mananim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan River, and I swore to him by the Lord. It goes on to say this I will never kill you with the sword. Okay, that sounds all right. So don't let him go unpunished. For you are a wise man. You know how to deal with him to bring his gray head down to Sheol with blood. David, in his last hours, reveals to us that in spite of all of these things that have happened in life, he had held on to the resentment of this man who had hurled insults at him. Now last week we began a series of sermons on Life Apps And today I want to tell you we're not going to use David as a shining example of what we're going to talk about. One of the things I love about David is that he is completely human, right? I mean... He he is called the man after God's own heart. He is the king of Israel during the golden age. He passes it off to Solomon. He wants to build the temple for God. Last week in our Sunday school class, we talked about the fact that he gave so much of his own personal wealth to build the temple of God. It was this amazing thing that he had done. He obviously loved God. But there were these parts of David that we all sympathize with, that we all see in our own selves. And one of those is that it is easy for us... To hold on to hurts and betrayals and insults and carry them with us for years. Now if you remember last week we talked about a a particular verse of Scripture that's found in the book of James. And we're not going to be in James today. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and we're going to look at one verse there. But I wanted to remind us of this verse in James that simply says, Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. The idea behind that passage of Scripture and the Uh, The full passage that we looked at last week is that if we just come and we hear the Word of God, if we read the Word of God, if we understand the Word of God, if we listen to the Word of God, and yet we don't do what it says, then we are deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are following the Lord. And this little phrase that we used that was at the end of the video that we used as our main point last week is simply this. When it comes to following the Lord, application is everything. Application is everything. And today what I want to do is talk about one specific word. One word that we will talk about the ramifications of not doing, talk about how we can implement it, and talk about the benefits that come from it. It's a simple word. It's a word we've all used, we all know, some of us have practiced, and in some relationships have not. It's just the simply the word forgiveness. Today, the challenge that I'm going to give to you is to put into practice what you know to be true. To do what God's Word says about forgiveness. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've talked about it before. We've used this passage before. We're going to look at one specific portion of the passage. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, and remind you this is not written to two people that are getting ready to get married, although it's used in that sense. It's written to a congregation of people that sometimes had issues getting along. And the Apostle Paul is saying that love is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. I just want to take it and and focus down on one phrase in that entire portion of Scripture. In that entire verse, I want to look at one phrase, and it is simply this phrase. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, the Bible tells us that. We know that to be true, but we live in a record-keeping society. Did you know that practically everything you do is being tracked these days? I mean, where you are, what you watch on TV, you get on the computer, what you put on the Internet, things you purchase, things you buy. I mentioned the Apple iPhone last week and kind of the revolution that it was. This week they announced some upgrades that are coming in some of the things they're doing. Not the phone itself, but the software behind it. And here's one of the things that they're able to do now and I can do this on my phone at the moment, through their music buying service, I can now look and see any music I have ever purchased with them in the history of me buying music from them. And then it can tell me if it's on my phone or not, or my computer or not, and it can just say, just click a button, and whatever I've bought in the past becomes mine again. That's just a small example of the fact that we live in a record-keeping society. Paper has been replaced by digital, but when you go to the doctor now, they can pull up in an instant everything you've ever had happen to you in any place of time. It just happens. Um, I, I was thinking this week um, about my boys and Maddie, and thinking about Eli Luke and Maddie, how their lives from, you know, some of us grew up before all the digital age, and there are some portions of our lives that have been lost uh, into the record-keeping cloud right and that's okay with me but there will not be portions of their lives outside of catastrophic meltdown of some kind that will be lost but keeping records isn't something that started with our generation people have always kind of been record keepers especially when it comes to personal relationships i mean even as you Think about David walking out of that town. Some of you may have had your own personal accuser. Maybe you remember even back in elementary school or junior high or high school, somebody that constantly kind of tormented you. There's a, uh, this, this new emphasis on bullying in schools, and it's a great thing to have an emphasis on bullying in schools, but bullying in schools has been going on for a long, long time. And perhaps you remember a particular person who... Um, either in their own insecurity or just for the fun of it, kind of railed on you, talked about you. Maybe it was in your athletic ability or it was in some part of your physical appearance or maybe it was an emotional quality you had. Maybe it was a coach that you had in a sport that really just rode you, just, just talked to you in a way that, that just made you feel inferior. Maybe it was... Um, a, a teacher in school that did those kind of things that over and over you had this. Maybe you were one of those that was the last to be picked when it came to getting a game together and you remember that. Maybe it was um, in your own home. Maybe it was a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister that tormented you, that talked to you, that constantly reminded you of your own shortfalls. Maybe it's not from your childhood. Maybe it was your own children and some things that they did. Or maybe it was co-workers. Or maybe a church member or a pastor. Staff member at a church. Maybe it was in a social organization. And somebody mistreated you. And let me just be real honest. The easiest thing in the world to do is to hold on to that. To think about it. To think about ways that you can get back or things that you should say or things that you wish you could say or acts that you could take. The easiest thing in the world to do is to keep a record of wrongs. But what does the Bible say? It says, keep no record of wrongs. And here's what I'm challenging you to do today, is to do what the Bible says. Keep no record of wrongs. Now, there are some steps to that, and we're going to talk for a moment about that, about ways that you kind of incorporate that. And one of the things is that you try to prevent it. Just, just, just you know, you realize, listen... <laughs> We're all fallen people. We are people that are sinners by nature. We are people that make mistakes. We are people that miss the mark. I mean, if you need an example of somebody that is a sinner, then just look in the mirror in the morning. We're all there. And so realize that a part of our nature is people are going to do things that will hurt us. It is a reality. If you are in a relationship with another human being Of any kind. Romantic. Marriage. Friendship. Coworker. Schoolmate. You will be in a relationship where the other person will do something to offend you. To hurt you. It's just natural that that's going to happen. Because when it does. We sometimes act shocked about the fact that people let us down. And when we begin to hold on to that. That it begins to just consume us from the inside out. So you just prevent it. Say, I, I know that this is going to happen, I'm, and I'm just going to determine not to keep a record of wrongs. And so I'm going to forgive very quickly. Now, if you've got past hurts that you need to get past, the second thing you've got to do, once you just kind of work to prevent it, to keep no record of wrongs, is just decide to do it. I, I heard this week about, Uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, who remembers a conversation one morning around the breakfast table. And his dad, just kind of in the breakfast table, just kind of said, By the way, if Harry feels like it today, tell him to go out and mow the yard. And Harry thought, "All right, that sounds like a good suggestion. And as his dad got up and began to walk out the door to go to work and go, Oh, and by the way, tell Harry he'd better feel like it today. Right? If he feels like it, do it. And by the way, feel like it. Well, forgiveness is kind of that way. If you feel like forgiving, do it. And Jesus says, by the way, feel like it. Feel like it. Now, he does that for uh, many reasons. But the main reason he does it is for you. When you don't forgive someone, it turns your life upside down. One pastor talked about um, going... Uh, to church and speaking one Sunday evening and this couple came up to him afterwards and said we want you to know we don't normally come to this church but we came here tonight because you were speaking and he said oh okay go to church and one goes well occasionally but we used to go here we don't go here anymore well what happened and they began to tell the story of how a deacon had offended them as a couple and he said the freshness of the story was as if it had happened last week and he said well tell me when did this happen and he said it was about ten years ago, and he said, "You could tell for ten years that moment had prevented them from growing in the Lord." I, I remember, uh, and I've used this quote before, but I remember a few years ago now when the uh, University of Tennessee football coach Phil Fulmer was let go. Phil Fulmer afterwards was interviewed, and this was a couple of months afterwards, and he somebody said, "Are you bitter about?" And he says, you know, he said, being bitter against someone is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. It just begins to develop within you. It causes joylessness and vengefulness and a negative attitude. Resentment wells up. It destroys relationships. It destroys who you are. Bitterness comes up. And you are the casualty when you withhold forgiveness. So as a result, you've got to take the initiative. You've got to be the one that says, it's my job to keep no record of wrongs, and so I am going to release the offender. I'm going to say, Lord, I'm giving it to you, and I'm going to let you have it, and Lord, it is yours, and I'm going to release it unto you. And you focus on the future. Now, here's the thing. Forgiveness doesn't require that they accept it or that they change their behavior. So if you say, I've tried to forgive them before, they won't do anything differently. Well, that's not your concern. God has called you to keep no record of wrongs. God has called you to forgive, regardless of what the other person does. Remember when uh, Jesus was teaching and, and... Disciples are trying to sound smart around Jesus. Kind of say, "Listen, Jesus, we we we're starting to get it. We're starting to get what you're saying here. You know, we're we're feeling it. So, guess what, Jesus? Wouldn't it be great, Jesus, if we could just get everybody to understand that all we've got to do is let people be forgiven seven times. Once they've once they have done something to you more than seven times, then you don't have to forgive me for But up to seven times. I mean, we're raising the standard here, Jesus. We're not talking about once or you know the old the old saying." Uh, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We're, we're talking about seven times here. What does Jesus say? Seventy times seven. Now, again, that doesn't mean go, well, he that's 489. He's got one more chance. The idea there is you just forgive. Now, the way you do that is you remember what God has done for you. The only way in your life you will ever have the strength to forgive is to remember the way God forgave you. This week I uh, had the privilege of being a part of Vacation Bible School. I told Eli and Luke this year they just loved Bible School. You know, they both are at that age when they they love the music and they wanted the music in the car and they wanted to sing it when we got home. And they they sing it as, you know, we're at the table and just one of the songs would come out. And then this was a year that, that Eli... Some things are beginning to click in his mind about Jesus. And and a lot of things are happening. He's asking deeper questions. And it's really a neat VBS because we had a lot of kids um, that were just asking some deeper questions. And part of my responsibility in Vacation Bible School, I told you a lot, one of the great things about being a pastor is I get to go to Vacation Bible School every year. And I mean that. I love it. One of my responsibilities is that I get to be the Bible study teacher for the 5th and 6th grade something I want to do, I love to do, I love being around those kids. And during this week, one of the stories we talked about was the story of Jesus going to eat at the house of Simon the Pharisee. You remember that story? Jesus goes to eat at the house of Simon the Pharisee, and Simon the Pharisee is there. And and the Bible makes these kind of weird statements at the end, but generally when someone came to eat at someone's house, when there was a dinner party, that the first thing you did is when they walked in the door, you you greeted them. And I, I told the kids, you know, we greet with a handshake or fist bump or maybe a hug but in their society they greeted with a kiss on the cheek to which all kids went ew right so they do the kiss on the cheek and they're like even boys i said even boys yes that's what they did and so jesus walks in and nobody greets him with a kiss on the cheek well the second thing you did is if you had guests over to your house you offered one of your servants to come over and to unloose the sandals and wash the feet because it dusty dirty Uh, stinky stuff that was out in the road and so Jesus walks in and nobody offers to wash his feet and then in some houses especially if it was an honored guest you would take out the oil that was like perfume and you would sprinkle a little bit just to help with the unpleasant smells that may have been accumulated throughout the day nobody offers any oil So Jesus just reclines at the table and begins to eat. And in the middle of eating, in comes a lady. She breaks the jar of perfume over his feet. Her tears begin to flow to the point that she's able to see them on his feet. And she takes her hair and begins to wash them off. Simon is furious. This uninvited guest has crashed our party. And Jesus said, you didn't give me a kiss on the cheek. You didn't wash my feet. And you didn't anoint my head with oil. And this woman has done all of that. And then he says this. To whom much is forgiven, those people love much. And the idea and the truth is that you and I have been forgiven much. And instead of trying to figure out the appropriate ways and times to forgive, we just need to forgive. forgive. This week I've been captivated finishing up a book that um, I don't normally recommend uh, books that that uh, aren't kind of spiritual growth books, but I'll recommend a book to you called Unbroken. It's a story of a guy named Louis Zamperini. How many of you ever heard of louis Zamperini from second world war he's an amazing man i mean how many of you've read this book i know i talked with jerry garrett about it it's an amazing book louis Zamperini was a man who um most people believe would have been the first man to break the four minute barrier in the mile he ran in the olympics in germany and uh didn't win the race uh But got to the point that his last lap was the fastest last lap of anybody, so much so that it impressed Hitler. Those were the games Hitler was presiding over, and Hitler requested a personal meeting with the man with the last fast lap. Zamperini was training for the next set of Olympics and was a shoe-in to be the favorite at the mile. He was running mile times. At that time, the best mile in the world were in the 4.10 range. He was running laps and miles close to four minutes. In the middle of all of that happening, a war broke out. Pearl Harbor happened. He was enlisted. He ended up being a bomber in a fighter plane. He was the guy that stood over, used the tools to calculate where the bombs went, and dropped the bombs. After many successful missions, they were put in a plane that was not their own. It was not the best plane, and it went down. Louis, his pilot, and another crewman ended up as the only three survivors of the plane crash, and they ended up in a raft in the middle of the ocean. They survived on the raft for over 40 days on eating nothing at all hardly. Capturing rainwater, literally catching a shark and eating the liver because that was the only thing you could eat. Trying to make fish hooks out of different things and pulling things grabbing birds that would land on them because they were so still, wringing their necks so they could eat. Now, only two of them made it, the pilot and Louis, and they floated for hundreds of miles, thousands of miles, and ended up seeing land in the distance. Before they could make it to land, they were encountered by a Japanese ship because the island to which they had gone was a Japanese-occupied island. Louis was immediately made a prisoner of war he was put into a camp there later transferred to another camp transferred to another camp and he would eventually come into contact with a man that they would just simply call the bird and he took as his personal mission in the war to break Louis Zamperini every day he beat him mauled him, he kicked him Louis lost weight, had diseases was reported dead to his own family because they couldn't find him they later found out that Louis was promoted all the way up and trying to be broken because they wanted to use him as a propaganda tool on radio Louis was literally at the point of breaking when word came that the war was over He survived. He came back to America. The bird was put on the international war crimes list, hunted down, not found, and assumed dead. But every night when Louis went to sleep, the bird came to him in his sleep. The beatings continued in nightmares. Louis ended up an alcoholic. He ended up angry, obsessed with going after finding his captor and killing him. He began a downward spiral that ended up destroying his family. His wife moved back to her home state for a little while and then came back, and they were just trying to figure out how to get a divorce when a young man came to town and decided to start talking about Jesus. The young man was a guy named Billy Graham. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Billy Graham began a last ditch effort at a crusade in Los Angeles because his previous crusades had not done anything. His original scheduling was there and while he was there, uh, Louie's wife heard about it and she went and she came home and told Louis she had been regenerated, that she had a revival and Louis just blew it off. She begged him for weeks, days to come. Graham kept extending the revival. It was one of the most, it's the revival that really launched his evangelistic career. He kept extending it. And finally one night, Louie went. And as Louie went, he sat there and he listened to Graham talk. And when the time came, he, he felt some tuggies inside. But when the time came, when Billy Graham said, every head bowed, every eye closed, Louie grabbed his wife and said, we're getting out of here. And they walked out the back. His wife said, you got to go back. He said, I'm not going back. And so finally, under extreme pressure, he went back. And as the book brilliantly describes, As Graham began to speak that night, he began to say things that took Louis back to moments in his captivity and his wandering on the ocean when God had rescued him. That's what it says in the book. Louis let go of Cynthia and turned toward Graham. He felt supremely (laughs) alive and he began walking. This is it, said Graham. God has spoken to you. You come on. Cynthia kept her eyes on Louie all the way home. When they entered the apartment, Louie went straight to his cache of liquor. It was the time of night when they usually took hold of him, but for the first time in years, he had no desire. He carried the bottles to the kitchen sink. He opened them, and he poured them in the drain. He hurried through the apartment, gathering cigarettes, stash of magazines, everything that was a part of his ruined years. He heaved it down a trash chute. In the morning, he woke feeling cleansed, and for the first time in five years, the bird hadn't come into his dreams the bird would never come again there's an amazing epilogue to that story the bird wasn't dead he hadn't killed himself he had lived in obscurity for years and after the war criminals were allowed to kind of live again he began to live a real modest life he ended up being an insurance salesman doing some really big things financially but when the Olympics were going to be in Nagano in 1998, Louis was asked to run the Olympic torch past the camp he had been in. Sixty minutes contacted him and said, we're going to do a story about you in the Olympics, and by the way, your tormentor is alive, and we wondered if you would like to meet him face to face. Louis agreed, the bird agreed, and the time came for all that to begin to happen. Eventually, when they got there the tormentor didn't show up. But this is the letter Louis wrote to him as he was getting ready to meet him. To Matashuro Watanabe, as a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sugamao Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you had probably committed harakiri, which is suicide, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would come to know Jesus. Now here's the thing. I don't know what in the world has happened to you. I don't know what people have done to you. I don't know what your family, your friends, your schoolmates, your co-workers, church members have done. But my guess is, none of it really compares to that. And the point of all of this is this. The Bible says that if we're going to live a life dedicated to the Lord, then we will keep no record of wrongs. That we will forgive our enemies, that we will love them. My question is, are you doing it?